House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery, and I'm Al Ward, sitting at the controls. And in Boston, we have the one and only Rich <laughs> Richard North. I keep changing your name because I'm you know, Richard North Patterson. Yeah, yeah. David South Martino. I, That's I, I haven't figured it out That's because enough. you can't have three names. That's the name of a serial killer, and plus you cannot take your wife's name. I know. That's just so embarrassing. Just terrible. So I'm embarrassed. I'm I'm embarrassed. <laughs> you know it's bad when I'm embarrassed. Um, <laughs> so uh, on that same thing, uh, we have uh, two 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 names and initials. We have a um, true crime Canadian author who's written some great books, Unsolved, Last to Die. Um, so we've got Robert J. Showski. Thanks for being here. Oh, most welcome. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's always good. Always good to hear your voice and uh, see your lovely picture. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, Robert, what's been going on with you? It's been a, it's been a while since you've been on the show, and uh, what what what's up for you? What have you been following lately? Uh, basically, a lot of the cases here in Canada, um, and some of the fallout from different cases, like the Bruce MacArthur murders, which happened a few years ago in Toronto's Gay Village. It was just released this week, a report called Missing and Missed, which uh, talks about basically how police dropped the ball on MacArthur, who had been arrested before, investigated before, yet he was allowed to still commit murders over the next number of years. So pretty horrible cases and a uh, pretty damning report. Well, and something like that, too. Now, when it gets to Bruce MacArthur, do you... Do you attribute that to being um, because it was a um, gay murder or, or something in the closet, so to speak, um, like his victims? Is that, do you think that's the kind of why cops don't really get involved or they drop the ball, so to speak, in that? Or is it just incompetence? Like, where do you put that? It's a great question. I think maybe it's a little bit of both because, you know, I don't want to necessarily slam the Toronto police because they do good work. But the problem is there's still been issues over the years. Like with my with my most recent book, which was about the murder of uh, Shushan boy Emmanuel Jacks that came out in 2017, nothing much has really changed in the past 40 years with regard to different attitudes towards, uh, I don't know if I say marginalized people, because the report also covers certain people, uh, prostitutes, for example, sex workers, sorry, sex workers, and how they're treated and their investigations are basically not taken as seriously as would be for, say, some, some wealthy kid from Forest Hills. So it's kind of, in, in a way, it's its own type of, um, I, I don't want to say racism, but it's its own type of people do get treated differently in the law. Yeah, Absolutely. It's, Absolutely. It's not like, you know, but how are we ever going to really overcome that? Like, it's, it's harder to determine... Um, in a case where, let's say, everyone's, you know, in Canada is fairly fairly white in a lot of areas, but it's not really considered a place that's that's racist per se. But there still there still is that issue. Maybe I want the word might not even be racist necessarily, but discriminatory. Right. And you know that's that's part of the problem too is that. You know, there's always been worldwide a focus on certain types of people when they go missing. It's, you know, I'll probably get lambasted for this, but I don't care. Like, you know, the pretty female, young, white, Anglo-Saxon types. I mean, you know, you look at the news and worldwide how many cases are still in the news after decades of, you know, missing pe missing persons. But if you're basically black, gay, marginalized sex worker, there's not much of an emphasis. I mean, even closer to your neck of the woods, you know, the most infamous being Robert Picton. Right. You know, that could have been addressed a hell of a lot longer than it was. That's the problem. Yeah, and one of the one of the cops that was on that used to party at, at Picton's, too. Oh, I didn't know that, really. Yeah, and I found that out by accident. Well, sort of. Um, just gossip in the community because um, w one of those uh, policemen... Um, who was a sergeant, retired, and he ended up being on the, the radio doing a, a podcast, or not even radio, it was just on podcast. 
and uh, he was found out by his co-host, and they and they fired him. And uh, so then the gossip came around. So I don't know how much of the details are there, but apparently he used to go there and um, hang out and party all the time. So Jesus, yeah, that's that's going to be another kind of scandal, I guess. But uh, absolutely, absolutely. I I just don't know. Um, I find it difficult because I don't really see an answer to this yet. How how do we make things better? Affirmative hiring would be one way to do it. More boots on the ground in certain communities. Uh, I think trying to treat everyone equally, which I know is a it's a it's a big pill to swallow, but you know that's what has to happen. I mean, because someone's you know black and poor doesn't mean that their murder or disappearance should be treated any differently than someone who's rich and white. Yeah, and because there, there, that's one aspect of it. Another one is, uh, you know, like, for instance, I know cross-border and stuff, like when someone gets pulled over and they get shot and killed for just a traffic violation, um, it seems rather extreme. Um, you know, it seems like an extreme sort of movement. Like, how, how could... How could something escalate like that for no reason at all? And for something, isn't that kind of over-policing a little bit? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, several of my friends are black, and we've traveled to the States. And I remember one time, you know, back when I had more hair and a ponytail. <laughs> Uh-oh. And I, and I was with my friend who's also named Rob, and we were traveling to Buffalo, and they made us get out of the car at the, at the border. And it's like, what do you two do? And we made the mistake of saying we're both journalists. <laughs> <laughs> step out of the car and I mean we were grateful basically that they didn't strip the car you know right. and and you know my friend had to produce his identification from the Toronto Sun where he worked I had my press card as well and you know it was like pretty I wouldn't say necessarily harrowing and I wouldn't pretend to say it's what people go to you know black people go through in the states on a, on a fairly uncomfortable regular basis but it really made you aware. It's like, you know, every other time we've gone through, when I have you know, short hair and said I worked for a business magazine, going through, no problem. It's like, oh, you're a journalist. Are you trying to work here? Like, what are you doing? You look kind of sketchy, that type of thing. So, <laughs> Yeah, we're doing a marijuana report in the U.S. No. Um, <laughs> you know, it's strange, because at, at, but in, in Canada, there's a lack of resources, and that's an issue as well, because when we're also out on this side in the western part of the country we have got you know the highway of tears which you yes. know for, for, for what 40 plus years now um people girls have gone missing and been killed for a long time and uh, you know this is a series of killers not just one because it's gone on for too long um yet they still only have two officers patrolling that whole highway good lord well they they, they, they can't afford it uh, Prince George to Prince Rupert, they have two officers. Um, how do you cover that? <laughs> Although you'd, you'd think with today's technology, Alan, I mean, I know that some police jurisdictions are using drones, for example. Yeah. You know, like, like you think you can incorporate, like uh, police love to talk about all the new gizmos and gadgets on the market and, you know, how we, how we have a budget for body cams and drones and things like that so there's definitely some other ways to cover it but again it comes back to the problem that you know these the deaths and disappearances of these people they're just not taken sadly as seriously i mean i found that even with my second book trying to find research and people to contact about girls who were missing and murdered from foster homes for example or young women there are two in my book in fact who were uh, alleged by police to have been involved with drugs their murders weren't taken nearly as seriously by the press, even. Mm. You know, the amount of coverage was far, far less. When you were when you were doing that, that's unsolved, I believe, right? Yes. When you were doing that book, when you go out to do research on something like that, um, what what's your process? Do you actually go talk to a lot of the families? Do you how do you choose who you want to involve in the book? Well, that that was a tough one because. After the book, well, I shouldn't say after, while I was writing the book, somehow word got leaked out of different blogs that I was doing this book, and I started being inundated by family members of murdered and missing persons. And just because of sheer logistics, I narrowed it down to 12 cases, which I called still solvable, because at the time, it was like a 40-year time frame. It, it was a difficult choice. I mean, I've had... I've been approached by different publishers to do a second volume, a third volume, 
you know, we have so many, in Toronto alone, we have so many unsolved cases going back to the city's first incorporation, which was 1957, over 500 cases. I mean, you know, go across Canada, the numbers are just, it's appalling how many people went missing, especially, I found, in my research, a lot of young women in the 70s. Disproportionate number, dis a crazy disproportionate number. Was that going on in the rest of the world as well, or is that just something that's kind of more pinpointed in Canada? I would say more pinpointed in Canada and cross-border towns and communities. There's been some, some rumblings about uh, London, Ontario being one of the murder capitals of Canada, Ontario being a hotspot for serial killers in the 70s. And when you think about it, I mean, to get away with crimes back then of any nature was a hell of a lot easier than it would be now. Right. You know, there, there weren't cameras everywhere. There wasn't somebody with a cell phone with a, with a camera, a recorder on every corner. You know, there was no Internet. So it was a lot easier to commit crimes back then. But definitely there was something something going on in the 70s, which, you know, pretty unholy stuff. Mm. Yeah, I wonder. I know, I know um, like Peter Vronsky puts it to generation coming from the war. Yes. And the influence and, and how people treated their children that came out of the war, right? So I don't know. Um, it makes you also wonder what the kids today coming out will turn out like in 20 years. Mm. Wow, you know. that's actually something I hadn't thought of. That's a very good that's a yeah. very good question to ponder, actually. I know Peter, I mean, he's a friend of mine, and his research is fantastic. And what he's come up with, you know, his last book was about the golden age of serial killers. <laughs> and, and, you know, you speak to Peter, and the funny thing about him is he says, like, people have this, this preconceived notion that serial killers are always, like, you know, out killing. And for the most part, he said, no, they're not. They're out shopping, they're home with their wives, or they're kids <laughs> they're going they're going to work they're not necessarily killing 24 7 yeah i got it, yeah. i got that with the green river killer it was his wife was there 14 years and she had no idea she, she didn't know where he had the time to do it incredible yeah <laughs> absolutely incredible absolutely incredible so you know it's, it's kind of crazy um but it just is something that keeps on going, I guess. Do you think trafficking, human trafficking, is, is really kind of the main source for these missing, uh, especially girls? Again, that's a great question. It's a huge driver. And one case over the years that's kept haunting me about that, that is Nicole Moran. She's a little girl. She's actually one of two or three cases in Canada where someone disappeared literally without a trace. Like nothing. No physical evidence of any sort. No, no, like zero. She's a little girl. She was in her apartment with her parents living upstairs in a penthouse. She was going to meet a friend downstairs in the pool, and she disappeared between the top floor and the pool, somewhere in the building. Nobody saw her. And one of the theories, uh, this was revealed to me by a lady in Belgium when they had a bunch of cases of uh, little kids going missing and being offered for uh, sex crimes and sex trafficking, that uh, she may have been abducted because they were able to do biometrics of different photos they seized from uh, pedophile hard drives, and they swear that one of them was actually Nicole Moran. And the sad thing is the likelihood of her being alive is, like, very slight. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's really too bad. Oh, depressing. Now, 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 one of your other books, you did The Last to Die, I believe. That was about the last um, of... Um, a person being put to death by the justice system. Do you think Canadians in general still feel that, that there should be no capital punishment? You know, it's interesting because I was reading some reports recently, and one just came out pre-COVID, literally just before COVID last year, and the um, numbers have declined slightly. For many years after capital punishment was abolished, it was about a 50-50 split. Some years it was 49-51, some years it was like 52-48 in favor. But I think it's the number, the interest in it is somewhat less than it used to be. And I mean, I don't think it'll ever be brought back to Canada. It's pretty, it's pretty interesting, you know. It seems like, because um, I, I just worked on that case, you know, the Wells Gray murder. And because mm -hmm. he's up for his parole here in July. And, uh, you know, he, he killed seven people in all, so uh, it's kind of it's kind of crazy to think that you can kill that many people and get out of prison. So I think part of the problem is um, that we don't put them in prison long, you know, for these murders. 
Yes. And I think we need to. We need to, and, and part of the it, – it's such a fascinating subject, Alan, because part of the issue is people think on one side – the majority of murders are not premeditated. You know, I had some really good discussions with a lawyer about this once, and he said, you know, most normal quotes-unquotes people don't get up in the morning and say, I'm going to kill somebody. Oftentimes, it's somebody goes to a bar, they get into a fight, you hit a guy in the head, the guy falls, hits his head against the counter and bleeds out, that type of thing. Murder, manslaughter, right? But then you have the ones like the Bernardos of the world and the Hamolkas and the Robert Pictons. And, you know, my, my fear with these people, and, you know, I've, I've been criticized about this, but I stick to my guns, is that some of them will come up for a, a parole one day. I really genuinely believe that. Because the problem is we're not using the same matrix that we would have used when Paul Bernardo was convicted in the 90s that we would be using in the 2020s. And public perception is such that a lot of people will think, well, he's done his time, he'll get out, you know, he's unlikely to commit murder again. Or that my favorite is always, he'll be an old man when he gets out. You know, and to me, the only difference between a young killer and an old killer is, is speed, basically. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you could be a seven, seventy year old, seventy year old, and you know, and you're still you're still able to kill somebody. Yeah, it's kind of crazy, but you know, the thing is, things happen because you know, with this last case, um, you know, sharing is is um, has been approved for six uh, six. Un, unescorted day passes out of prison when when COVID's up, and this is a guy that raped two two little girls and killed them, and, and a family of, of four. And I, I I don't know. It's just it seems rather uncomfortable. Well, and there's been there's been precedence of what happens when people do get out. I mean, I don't know if you're you're familiar with the case of um, Peter Woodcock. A little. Yeah, he killed three kids in Toronto, just for your listeners to bring him up to speed. He killed three kids in Toronto in the 50s. And a friend of mine actually wrote a book about someone who was charged with the murder but didn't commit it called The Boy on the Bicycle. So Peter Woodcock, what he would do is he would bike around Toronto. He was just a teenager at the time, very young teens, and he killed these three kids. Awful, awful cases. You know, he, he did all sorts of weird things like leaving pennies by the bodies and sticking a stick inside one of the children, that type of thing. Horrible. Mm. Point being, he was in Penetanguishene for, I believe, 37 years in the mental institution. I think it was 37 years. He got out on day pass, and he ended up with another inmate killing someone within five hours. Wow. Yeah. And there's haunting, haunting photos of his, him being arrested again. And he has, like, this T-shirt soaked in blood. I believe he stabbed the other person something like 40 times. Yeah. So that's the thing. You're, you're really rolling the dice when it comes to letting somebody out. I mean, even, if, even like, one of my last, my last book about the murdered Shushan boy, one of the killers is someone named Saul Batesh. And he's been coming up for day parole eligibility, and he keeps getting denied. But the fact of the matter is, one day, if he lives long enough, he won't be denied. He will get out on day parole. And the monstrosity of what he did isn't erased because of time, in my opinion. No, I mean, because there is no time for release on people like that. Exactly. There, right? No. I mean, because no. what they've done is so so horrific that um, you don't, you, would you want that person to be your neighbor, right? I mean, it's it's... It's just you can't go beyond it. Um, but they like to pull the old, well, they found Jesus, you know, and they're, they're, they're now okay, you know, that they're better now. Exactly, exactly. You know, they found Jesus, time heals all wound or all, you know, or he's done his time. That's one of my favorite. Yeah. And I guess, I guess Jesus lives in prison. I don't know because <laughs> there's just, I'm just getting, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing too much of that. Mm. Yes. What, What's next for you? Like, are you looking to do um, another book coming up, or what? Are you staying away I, from that? I, I am. Oh, no, no. I'm definitely involved. I've actually been, uh, again, can use the COVID excuse, but uh, I was going to go to uh, Library and Archives in Ottawa to get some information on capital case files for a project I'm working on. It's a murder from the 1930s. 
And uh, at the time, it was considered the crime of the century, like so many other crimes have been dubbed, right? But the thing is, I found out through my research that the perpetrator who was executed, he was just 25 and he was hanged at the Don Jail, was a serial sex killer, actually. And uh, he managed to elude police for at least five years before he was apprehended. Do you, so why go back to the 30s? Like, what is it about the time period, or is it just more the crime itself that attracts you? It's it's a number of factors, Alan. It's the crime itself. It's the history of the time, because the young woman he was charged and convicted of killing was out on the streets working, not as a prostitute, but she was out working as a secretary in the dirty 30s during the heart of the Depression. And just before that time, you would never have, you know, your daughter who was, you know, 20 years old going downtown to work. And it was born out of the necessity of, you know, having to survive during the Depression. So was that and the fact that it's the first case in Canadian history from what I was able to research that actually used rudimentary forensics. The perpetrator was convicted on entirely circumstantial evidence, including rabbit hairs that he found that were police found on his clothing from the uh, murder victim. So it's pretty remarkable stuff. I mean, I, I love, like, I, I'm a huge, huge, you know, forensics buff as well. Always have been. And the interest in it for me isn't just, you know, the whole modern-day CSI, look under an electron microscope, find this familial DNA thing. It's the beginnings of it where, you know, the, the more crude stuff, like let's analyze a footprint or, you know, did this bite mark match the person's flesh or, you know, we found a button under the body, that type of thing. To me, it's all very interesting. and It's really of its time, this story. It's quite, uh, quite fascinating stuff. Do you think there were better investigators back then? Yes. Yeah. They had to rely on their resources more. Yes, I say that without hesitation. The reason I say that is because lovely man, a lot of people couldn't stand them, but this one, <laughs> this one detective who passed away, who I interviewed for my first book, he was told back then by the chief of police, no word of a lie, come back with something within three days or don't effing come back at all. Right. Cops back then, I mean, nowadays with the union and everything, it's different. But back then, it was literally like, if you don't have something, F off. <laughs> you're, not, you're not coming back. You'll get demoted, that type of thing. Mind you, the problem with that is sometimes it resulted in people being roughed up <laughs> to get information, <laughs> things like that. But I think police also had a lot less patience back then. <laughs> yeah, they slap you around, you know. It's not, oh, they big time they'd slap you around. I remember... You know, like one of the last two men executed was Ronald Turpin, and another retired detective I interviewed. You know, I talked to Turpin's family, and I said, you know, apparently, like, the police hounded him before the murder. And this cop said unapologetically, yeah, we did for about a month. <laughs> like, they, they drove him to every seedy motel in every corner of Toronto and Scarborough. They, they did everything they could to make this guy's life a living hell. Dirty Harry. Yeah, yeah, yeah oh, that's it. <laughs> You took the words out of my mouth, not defending him because the guy was a cop killer. Yeah. But, yeah, very much it's like, you know, showing up in you know, pardon, Dirty Harry was in the football field when he shoots the guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then a wonderful, the wonderful helicopter shot pulls back. and He's like, you shot me. He's like, I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think, but I think that's the whole image that I certainly have in my mind when I see a lot of these uh, modern-day crimes go on forever to get someone convicted. And even when they do, there's so many appeals. And if they get, you know what I mean? It just it just seems uh, to be a show, you know, more than anything. Back in the 30s and 40s, they convicted you. You're dead in three weeks. Absolutely. I mean, even for, you know, my book, The Last to Die, <sighs> Jesus, Turpin shot and killed Officer Nash in February of 1962. This gives you an idea of how fast things worked back then. I think it was February 13th. He was executed with Lucas that December 10th. Right. There were two appeals. There were two appeals in between. Yeah. That's with two appeals. That's how quickly things went back then. I'm not sure what it is now with the Canadian example, but if you're a capital case in the states. It's a definitely, it's 12 years from conviction to uh, execution on average. Yeah. And, 12 and years. E and even then, you know, um, so many of them don't get executed. It takes so long, and if they ever, ever do. 
You know, yes. especially and and females. Females never get executed. Um, everybody avoids that like the plague, and I don't know why. I'm not sure either. I'm not sure either. I know the one exception I could think of would be Eileen Wernos, but you know she she wanted to go and be on the mothership like out of Independence Day and meet meet Jesus and everything else. Everything else she said. You're right. I mean, like one of them, it's uh, Darley, I believe, is Rotier. Rotier. Right. The lady who, uh, the silly string lady, the one who had the party for her deceased kids at the cemetery, and they use that as evidence. Oh, right, her. yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, she's been on death row for, my God, what, 25 years or more? Yeah. Like, long yeah, time. It, long it doesn't time. make sense to me, cause just because you're female. Uh, I don't understand that. Um, if, you're, if you're a killer, you're a killer. Exactly, exactly. Right? Uh, I mean, what body parts you have or what, what you identify as or whatever, none of that means anything. It's just either you're a killer or you're not. Yeah, there shouldn't be some sort of gender bias. In. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's, that's, oh, that's terrible. That's, that's the one place where they have the advantage, right? It seems uh, to be, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, send all your hate mail to Martino. He collects yes. it. Yeah, he collects it. I live for it. Yeah, he does. He, he, he'll fight you. Yeah, right. So it what makes life think, more interesting. Oh, certainly does. Where do you think crime's yeah. going? Where do you think it's going to happen? Like what? Because crime's evolving, change. You know, as it as is technology and people and the way we live. Um, do you think crime and serial killers and that will go up or down? I think it'll go down. I, I agree with what Peter's overall thoughts are about that. I think it'll actually go down. Factors why. That's a bit of a mystery in itself. I think other crimes, definitely like cyber crimes, are going to skyrocket, absolutely skyrocket. I mean, you see even with the, with the beginning of COVID, just how many people have had even like credit cards compromised and debit cards yeah. and all sorts of other things like that. So I think in terms of like, you know, murders, like that type of murder, it's going to decline. And, and the per public perception on so many things is changing and the government perception on, you know, all the nature of crimes now, like like drugs being, you know, delegalized, decriminalized rather. Yeah. You know, oh, it's definitely. Like, you know, heroin, heroin, and I think that's more even like your your neck of the woods yeah. talking about that, and yeah, you know, they've already yeah. kind of done that with the uh, the heroin. We've got the needle places now, and everything can. Uh, it's kind of crazy. Uh, um, I'm fine with it. Um, you, you, I don't think you need to be put put people that are drug addicts into prison. Uh, about the how about the dealers though? Well, yeah, sure, that's a different yeah. different thing. But you know, someone um, that has an addiction, I think we need to spend more spend the money w on helping them rather than just putting them away. Oh um, yes, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, that's easier to say than do, I guess. But um, that's kind of where where it's going. But uh, you know, we'll see what happens there. But it's kind of crazy. Um, I still worry about. The times we're in right now, what do you think about that? Like with the COVID and with all the stuff going on in the last few years especially, what kind of people or what kind of a generation are we going to raise out of this? One that's losing a lot of its empathy. And when I say that, I think of a lot of the horrible, horrible murders that have come out of places like uh, Russia, for example in recent years with, you know, it's not only a matter of committing a murder, but I mean, you know, to any, any normal person kill someone and to videotape it <laughs> and to put it out online, mm. which has happened time and time and time again, it's, it's unfathomable. It's like, why would you even do that? Why would you think such a thing? Why, like, I don't understand. It's this, it's this real disconnect. Uh, I mean, I remember working years ago and talking to a friend of mine, in the library system, and this is before they started having things like net nannies on computers. It's going back over 20 years, right? Yeah. And there was a little kid in the library, about 10, in full view of everybody, watching porn. And my friend was a librarian, and she was horrified. She goes over to him, and he's like, yeah, so? And at that moment, it, it, it kind of occurred to me, it's like, okay, morale, I mean, it's a different example compared to, like, hard crime, but it was a, an example to me, Alan, of, like, how morality you know, the cliche, the moral compass, but how morality is going down and down and down and down. 
And things that used to be seen as verboten, obviously murder being the worst of all, it's almost like, so what? Yeah. Don't care, yeah. you know? Yeah. Let, let, me, let me decapitate someone and have sex on the corpse and <laughs> photograph it. You know, there was a case like that a few years ago. There's like this devil worshiper murders a number of years back in the States as well. I mean, like, some of them are just like, I. <laughs> it's almost like even though I write about crime, sometimes I have to literally turn the news off. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's like you look at, especially the, the British publications, like the stuff they get from, again, from, the, from Russia and from other places. You know, someone kills their mother, walks down the street with her severed head, like nothing happened. It's like, <laughs> holy crap. Yeah. They're not scared to be seen. That's no. kind of, that's kind of what's I find that's yeah. different, you know. And like you said, film it. You know, next there'll be a Facebook live killing, right? It'll be. It's gonna. We'll have pay per view. <laughs> yeah. Well, there have been there have been Facebook live suicides. Wow. It's just a matter of time. It's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, and again, it's that whole decline of people's morality. Like, what is it? What's the disconnect between knowing what's right and wrong? And what's right and really, really wrong. Yeah. That's the scary thing. Uh, so it's a, in, a, in a way, it's good that uh, we're getting older. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, I don't, you know, like my wife and I don't have kids. We're in our 50s, but I'm thinking, mm. God almighty, like I don't know about the next, next generation. I don't want to be completely pessimistic about it, but it just makes you realize, like, you know, where are things heading? Are you seeing spikes in, um, in, in, in domestic crime because of uh, the lockdown? Yes. Oh, my God. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. A lot of, a lot of uh, I mean, I think the media is definitely underplaying it a little bit, but a lot of murders, a lot of murder suicides. Wow. A lot of, even older couples, which is a bit surprising because you'd think <laughs> if you've been together for 50 years, you're, you kind of tolerate each other, but no, there's been a number of cases even in, in the greater Toronto area recently of, you know, couples in their 60s. There was one woman in her 60s and her 70s that the husband, so she murdered her husband, older husband, and yeah, there's been a lot of uh, a lot of domestic issues recently. Well, they can't get out. No, yeah. no, no. Get out, get out, get out for their, their on-the-side squeeze. No. Well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, Dave's got his wife in the trunk. She's been in there. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, that's his way of dealing with it, you know. Well, with, with a word we got in, in Ontario today as well, like the highest COVID numbers to date and more crackdowns coming, like people are like really starting to lose it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, but there's the thing I find the most peculiar is the way people have reacted to this. Uh, you know, the states has kind of been the pinpoint of, of, of it, the worst, but <laughs> the behavior between people, how they treat each other, how they're acting during this this pandemic is just crazy. Uh, like it doesn't exist, or like your computer chips is fake, fake and vaccine and all that. You, you see the way people are, are treating each other right now, um, it's not something I expected. No, it, it's surprising. And to me, you know, it sounds really cynical, but it makes me realize how many people must have flunked out of grade 10 science class because they don't know the basics of viral communication yeah. or viral transmission. I mean, it's, not, it's you know, and you hear expressions out like, you know, uh, scamdemic. Yeah, plan, plan, pandemic is another one, you know, or like some of the some of the figures people are throwing out. It's like ninety nine point five percent less deadly than the flu. It's like show me your science degree. I mean, you know, my my brother in law is a bloody scientist, like an actual real scientist with his own lab in Alberta, and he goes ballistic whenever he hears this stuff. He he avoids the news because of this. Yeah, and that's what I I don't understand where it's going because of that because if that's how they act and react to something like like what's going on um you know like uh how are they going to because you treat each other in a bad way on a day-to-day -day life how how easy would it be to kill or hurt someone that's a good point actually it's true i mean if you if you have again it comes down to this lacking empathy you know like some people think it, it's a it's a hoax which blows me away because we just found out recently that a good friend of ours had it in December, and he knows exactly how he caught it, and he still has breathing issues. Yeah. And a neighbor up the street, her husband, young guy in his 30s, caught it exactly a year ago in March, 
and he still has no sense of smell, and he's wow. actually clinically depressed because of it. Yeah, yeah. So actually, you know, yeah, yeah. we have like, a friend it's, like that. Yeah. Really? Yeah, it's horrible. It's horrible. You know? Yeah, it's weird, but I think maybe that's what people need to realize that um, I guess if you know someone or you see someone that's been through it or died from it, um, it becomes real. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm still saying the people that are protesting, I see big protests going on and, uh, you know, anti-maskers and freedom and all that. I said, you know, start putting them in the morgue and deal with bodies. Uh-huh. I'm, I'm of the same mindset. Yeah. You know, it has to yep. be real. They have to understand yep. But at the same point, I, I don't know how we're ever going to get over that because that, that, that's what I mean. This whole, what kind of a generation is coming from this? Um, and where, how are they going to treat each other? And how are we going to police uh, people in these situations? And, uh, you know, like Dave's got his wife in the trunk. What are we going <laughs> to do with this? Like, how do we... Well, she's safe there, though. So. Yeah, she's well, got, actually, she's, safe. she's probably better off. Probably <laughs> <laughs> much better off. There. That's where she goes to get away from me. Yeah. It's <laughs> like, you know, he goes and gets her and says, can you make dinner? No, yeah. <laughs> oh, it's terrible, terrible, terrible. Well, so what, what's, what, what, do you think that this, this whole thing and, and what's going on is, um, do you think you will write darker in your book? Do you think wow. you'll look for darker subjects? Do you think you're going to come out darker? I don't think so, that I will personally come out darker. I don't think so. And the reason I say that, and it's a bit creepy to some people, but I always call it the ice cube tray theory, is that you know how you can still all be water, but each compartment is separate. And for me, I do that a lot with... My emotions, I do that with my writing, I do that with what I share with people, what I don't share with people. And I find that's a common trait among other friends who are crime writers and police as well. And the only thing you have to be careful of is this could really be to your detriment because it's almost like you're picking in your brain for a certain file when you're asked a question. And, you know, how do you feel about this? Here are the facts base. Okay, now here's the other file with my emotions about that. So will I write darker? I try to always write something that has some redeeming quality to it, preferably societal. And I, I don't know if I'll necessarily write darker, but that's a great, that's a great question. I mean, we'll see what happens with the next book. Well, I just think when, when, when dark things are going on around you or, you know, things that are stressful and um, not normal, um, when you sit down and you're writing, I just wonder if it seeps into that, you know, if it can get out. Uh, you know, you might not necessarily aim for something darker, but I just wonder if it comes out in, in your expressions. Uh, not as yet that I can tell, but definitely in my dreams. <laughs> dreams have been just whack. COVID dreams, it's a, it's a thing, guys. It's it's wacky. It's absolutely wacky. Like, I'm just like, why did I think of this? Like, where did that come from? You know? Everyone's like a, a zombie you know, in your dream. Very much so, yeah. No, it is. It's just like everything's just kind of like floaty and weird and, you know, like talking to somebody underwater type of thing. So, <laughs> Well, I thought you stopped doing the drugs. Oh, yeah. No, I didn't stop the alcohol, though. So. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, how do you, so what is your hardest case or hardest thing that you've ever written about? My unsolved book, because you realize when you talk to these family members 30, 40 years after the crime that the pain doesn't go away. And likewise, the expectation that they'll get some resolution doesn't go away. Very rarely does do they lose hope. Even, you know, say someone, like there's one case in the book, these two girls who were shot and killed, Wendy Tedford and Donna Stern. That was back in 1973. And one of the sisters was telling me not that long ago, like, they still hold out hope. And, you know, they've been through over a dozen detectives in Toronto over the years, and they call them, like, every year, what's happening? Are there any updates? What's going on? And, you know, so that's that's difficult, too. And also seeing the, the human turmoil about this, murders and unsolved cases like disappearances either drive families apart or bring them really close together. 
There's yeah. no indifference. There's no indifference. Yeah. And the number of the cases I wrote about the parents split up afterwards because one blamed the other, father blamed the mother, or they became a lot closer because of the crime. So there's always, like I said, this expectation that there might be some sort of resolution. And one of them, in fact, which is really exciting, um, Tyson Gilmore, it's a double homicide, which was tipped on to me by the Toronto police, in fact, which is also an unsolved. About uh, a month ago, it was reported that the case actually looks like it will be solved soon. It goes back to the 80s, because even though the two murder victims were very different in age and life experiences and all the rest of it, they were linked by DNA. That was about 10 years ago or so, and it looks like now there might finally be some sort of uh, end to that case. So those kind of cases, those unsolved ones, they, they sound like they stay with you right through, like they never leave. Very much so, very much so, because it's just a matter of, you know, the families, it is, like I said, they just they don't give up hope, except basically for one of the persons I interviewed who didn't give up hope, but he just said he was just too tired to even talk anymore about the case. It was yeah. a, a missing, missing girl. It was a father who was already in his 70s at the time. But, no, they definitely, they, they stick with you. They stick with you because... There's always some hope. I mean, if you go on Facebook, for example, my God, there's so many pages for family members worldwide, but especially a lot across Canada and the States. You know, my daughter went missing in 83. My son vanished in 1967. You know, they might have 12 followers or something, but there's still some family member holding out hope, sometimes even for a deceased parent of the of a kid who went missing. It could be like a niece or nephew or grandchild who starts up these Facebook pages saying, does anybody know anything? Right, right. You know, wow. you know? It's, it's very humbling. It's, it's extremely humbling. And I find that to even interview these people, it's, it's a privilege because they're sharing something that's so painful to them. And part of it when you speak to them is almost a little bit like therapy for them and therapy for you. It puts it puts everything into perspective. It's like if you think things are bad, you didn't go through this. They did. Right. It's their life. It, it's they, their life. They're living it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. What, what what advice do you give someone that wants to get into writing true crime? What would you say to someone? Balance your emotions as much as you can. Get involved, but always write from the victim's perspective, and don't glorify the killer. There's too much of that. There's way too much of that. There's too much writing and true crime where, you know, for example, you look into John Wayne Gacy's victims or Jeffrey Dahmer's or, you know, Ted Bundy. And, you know, someone's like, I want to write about true crime. It's like, okay, name me three of the victims of each. And they just look mm -hmm. at you blankly. Or they'll say something like, well, you know, all of... Ted Bundy, you know, all of Bundy's victims had, like, dark hair, they were pretty, and the hair was parted in the middle. It's like, okay, but what about them? Like, who were they? You're always writing about the people, and you can't lose sight of that. Right. Because I right. think once you do, you, you lose a certain part of your own humanity. So I would say definitely, you know, if someone's interested in true crime, get into it by all means. I mean, it's to me, it's still, and this isn't just because I'm in it. It's, it's the perfect bloody genre. It really is. Like, if it's done properly, it encompasses history, politics, crime, criminology, forensics, sexuality, everything. Every, the weather, for Christ's sake. Like, literally everything. Like, even for my, my first book, like, one of the revelations, it begins with the funeral of the last two men executed in Canada. They were buried at, like, three in the morning in a private plot in, in Toronto in the dead of winter. And I found out after that there was a full moon. And I was like, holy crap. Like, they were literally, like, they didn't have flashlights. The moon was illuminating these empty holes in the ground. And that's the type of thing, like, if you, if you have to really research everything, like, you know, I just, I just love getting into the weeds with this stuff. I would think so, because, like, even when you were talking about going back to the 30s and doing that, it's really important to put yourself back in that place and, and what it was like to live at that time. Uh, because it makes the book feel more real, if you are, you know? Yes. Yeah, it, it lends a lot of authenticity, I find, to the time. You know, and it, like even things that might seem inconsequential, like what music was playing that day, what movies were in theaters. 
And for somebody reading that, like, you know, and like, for example, with my book on the Shushan Boy, Emmanuel Jacks, it was 1977, which was like a huge year for crime worldwide. Son of Sam, a whole bunch of other cases, you know. And all this was happening at the exact same time. And it just makes things a lot more real for the reader. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I think so. I think it puts it puts them in the place, especially as time goes on, because, you know, geez, we've got people now that are in their 20s that have always had the Internet. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they had no idea what it was like to have no power, let's say, or no electricity, or just gas lamps, or outhouses or th three stations on the TV yeah <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and it goes off after the 11 o'clock news yeah know. yeah I mean I, I, well let me ask both of you do they still do that with with CBC television where they have the uh, O Canada playing at the end of the day <laughs> well, no, because they're, well they're 24 hour now right oh uh, so. see I used to love that I yeah. used to love that because I'd, I'd step all, all, all hours of the night watching, watching movies at like 3 in the morning. It's like I hear my mom yell, down, yell from upstairs. It's like they're, they come upstairs and play the national anthem. <laughs> yeah, I don't yeah. think they even do that in the States anymore. No. Really? Okay. I, I think it's 24-7 now. Yeah. yeah. Wow. See, yeah. that's the thing. Like, we're, we're of a generation where, you know, we remember this stuff. And like you said, Alan, like, what's going to happen is that, you know, the 20-somethings who've never been without the Internet. They don't, to them, a, DD, a DVD is archaic. Yeah. You know, yeah. Vinyl, vinyl is fashionable. Cassettes are, cassettes are a joke. Eight tracks are unheard of. <laughs> you know, wall-mounted wall phones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, rotary dial. Rotary <laughs> dial, yeah. Party lines, you know. that. Oh, my God, yeah. But, you know, but I think that's one of the things that bothers me most when I... Uh, I in modern day, if, if you're going to write something, it's so important because the worst thing in the world is to have people using phrases like, <clears throat> oh, I'm sorry for your loss, and things like that, that just were not part of the phrasing back in the 60s. You know, Absolutely. That, you know, because all of a sudden it throws you back, it throws you to 2020 and you're no longer, uh, the, people did not talk and act that way. They were talking sock it to me and... and <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was a different phrasing. So um, I well, see that. Yeah, you know, I see that. As yeah, problems. I mean, certain words like you know, I, I was cautious about that with my last book because the murderers of the Shushan boy, um, several of them were gay, right? Relevance of that being, you you read every newspaper report at the time. It talks about the gay gay village, transvestites, transsexuals, words which are not commonly used today. But they were used back in 1977. Right. So you think is you have to be mindful. It's like, okay, I'm reaching to this audience, but I also have to represent accurately the language of the time. Yeah. yeah. So that's another thing. Like it's, it's, it's a real balancing act, though. I mean, it's, it's a good thing, but I think you have to be true to the reader and you have to be true to the persons you're writing about. Yeah, it's really strange because you do have to be careful. There's so much of that um, cancel culture kind of stuff going yeah. on right now that if you word it incorrectly people will be mad at you yes yeah absolutely but then you have to also be honest with what you're writing about that's the thing yeah you know i mean think you know we'll, we'll see there's one thing we will see in the future even books and you're seeing it now with movies like disclaimers saying you know this isn't what i would have said myself but this is what the other said at the time <laughs> you know like yep. like they're doing that with films now like they're attaching you know yeah. <laughs> you know, something about Mary or films like that, where it's like, you know, we wouldn't portray someone who's mentally challenged this way in, you know, 2021, but back when the movie was made in 1998 or whatever it was, or 97, this is how yeah. they were depicted. So. <laughs> Do you think it's going to get harder to get books like that published? Yes. It, yeah. it will. It will, absolutely. Absolutely. There's, a, there's already been cases of major publishers canceling books because yeah. they object to something, something or other. Which isn't right. I mean, in my opinion, that's not right either because, you know, you're, you're doing future generations a huge disservice by not letting them aware of what happened, not letting them be aware of what happened. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, it's like, you know, Mein Kampf is a horrible, horrible thing, but it should exist. Absolutely. You know? yeah. yeah, yeah, we can't hide um, the past. Human nature is still there, and people need to understand it. You know, I, I just, yes. yeah, it's crazy to just eliminate it. I understand not celebrating it, certain things. 
Exactly. Exactly. But, but we can't forget where we came from, otherwise we'll do it again. That's not what they say. Yeah, and that's what I think, you know, when you asked earlier about the future gen generations, who knows what's going to happen, you know, in 2040. Well, I won't be here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you never know. Now, you have a website, don't you? A new website? Uh, I finally started up my website again. Uh, I actually have a friend working on it. So it's just uh, True Crime Canada. I've had it for about, oh, my gosh. 15 years <laughs> I've been bad with it. I had all these, you know, that's why I admire what you do, Alan, because I had all these wonderful expectations, like I'm going to blog, I'm going to do this and that. <laughs> I, I don't get around to it, and I should. Yeah, I should. I don't know where you find the time to do all this stuff. I mean, it's, it's commendable. I, it really is. It, it's, it, it's insanity. It's what it is. <laughs> I, I do too much, uh, you know. Actually, yeah, it's a, but, so uh, we're going to post your website. Oh, perfect. And then people can come find it, and you'll have all sorts of flashy pictures and stuff on there, right? Yes, absolutely. Links to my books as well, a little bio I have there. So, Well, there we go. And, and I hope, uh, to get it, hope to get it up by next week, in fact. So, Yeah, and you'll have uh, all sorts of uh, – you, you have all the contact. You can send them all your love mail and hate mail and <laughs> stuff. Oh, I still get that anyway, though. <laughs> find, find out where you can find them, you know, and then, you know. Maybe, who knows? Um, he'll, he'll be involved in his own true crime. Well, you asked earlier about uh, about giving advice to somebody who wants to do true crime, and I would add one thing to that, and that is be prepared that not everybody's going to be in love with you. <laughs> because I've got some comments, oh, my God, over the years. And, and it's also this, this interesting expectation some people have that you know everything about true crime. Yeah. I mean, we know a lot about true crime, you know, but not good toot my own horn here, but we don't know everything. Like, I mean, I remember I met John Douglas a few years ago. He's in Toronto, the right. big FBI, FBI guy. Yeah. And I mentioned, like, a famous serial killer case to him, you know, shook his hand afterwards. He'd never heard of it. Yeah. It's from the 70s. And he just said, that was, you know, I wasn't working in the department that time. I'm thinking, guy murdered eight people. And he's like, nope, don't know that one. It's like, okay, cool. Well, you know, it happens. Yeah, know? yeah. I mean, it, 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 there's only so much room. And if you are focused in doing something... You can miss a lot, you know, by not not being around. Like uh, when I'm focused on doing a lot of work, I I'll miss the news and all sorts of stuff for a long time. Really? Okay. Oh yeah, yeah I for, will. Yeah. Because yeah. I, I, I get overloaded and I start my brain's bleeding. And... <laughs> yeah, that's the that's the AstraZeneca doing that. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's how yeah I take one of those shots every week. Yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> Well, it's been a pleasure, and uh, we're always glad to have you on, uh, Mr. True Crime Canada, Robert J. Schowski. Thanks for being here. Thank you very much. Pleasure speaking with both of you. Thanks, Robert. Take care. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.